Ukraine's diaspora of professionals and refugees are playing an extraordinary role in supporting Ukraine, both materially, but also by raising awareness of its cause in their host countries and within the international community. Today, I'm speaking with Christian Boris, who is supporting Ukraine as a fundraising innovator, the founder of St. Javelin, which I know many of you will have heard of, which started by selling one sticker and has now contributed over $2 million to Ukraine's war effort since February 2022. Now, I don't know, Christian, whether that figure's correct or whether that's increased, but welcome to the channel. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for having me. I think, I think it's... Um around two and a half ish at this point it's it's yeah it's a lot more than i ever expected that's a lot of starlinks or trucks or well that's probably a good place to start where does the money go and how does it benefit uh ukraine's war effort so so i started it before the war started i started it um assuming that the war was going to start and when I started, um, the thing that was going through my head was uh, I was seeing all these all, all this news about, you know, are the Russians going to do it or are they not? So I used to be a journalist. I lived in Ukraine and, and, and worked as a journalist from 2015 to 2018. Um, and I, I at that point, um, the war that Russia started in 2014 there was a lot of repercussions coming, uh, you know, into society. You had soldiers who had PTSD, uh, lost limbs, families that had had their fathers or, or brother or whatever killed. Um, so I actually was doing some stories on, um, I climbed, for example, I climbed Ukraine's tallest mountain with a group of soldiers who were part of a PTSD uh, rehab, a rehabilitation program. I spent a week with um, widows and children of deceased soldiers who were brought to this retreat in the mountains um so when the war was starting those were the things that were going through my head sorry before the war was started those were the things going through my head and um when i when i started selling those stickers we were initially donating to the to the orphans of those of those deceased and and, and fallen soldiers from 2014 to uh, so the money was going to a registered charity in Canada called Help Us Help because those were the ones who introduced me and took me to those retreats in the mountains with with those groups of soldiers, um, and the first day I the first night was two sales and it was like eighty dollars in stickers and then I woke up the next day and it was a thousand dollars and then the next day it was like five thousand dollars and it just kept on going and, and becoming this, this whole thing in and of it itself, right. This phenomenon. Um, so by, I think by the second week of March, we had donated $500,000 already. Um, but, but even before the war started, we, we realized, I think the night before I had a meeting, uh, with a friend and we real we realized this is going to happen. So we have to, you know, I think there's thirty thousand dollars that we decided. Um, let's allot that for for these kids, and then now we're going to have to donate money to victims of violence. So then money started going towards IFACs, um, tactical combat medicine, stuff like that, bulletproof vests, helmets, um, and then because of my past my my past as a journalist, I had a lot of friends who reached out and said, like, you know, we have these guys from Fox and from The Guardian and CNN, they're coming out here fully kitted out. But like us Ukrainian journalists, we don't we, we don't have the proper gear, right? So we ended up donating um, 
I think it was 20 or 30K, something like that, initially to journalists. Um, and that helped them do things like um, key fat courses. So they were doing uh, like hostile environment training courses, buying bulletproof vests, helmets, stuff like that. And then we got into drones. So we worked with United 24, which is President Zelensky's like media platform. I think we were one of the first, the first organizations to do it. Um, we ended up raising along with partners at Ukrainian World Congress. We I think we contributed ourselves 350,000 and then they contributed at another 750 or something like that. So it was like a million dollars in total that went towards drones. Um which ended up being, I think they were DJI Matrice, like the, the, these big, like $10,000 drones. Right. Um, and then, and then we realized that we had to start planning for, uh, for, for the winter. So I think it was August, 2022, we realized, okay, this winter is going to be really hard because the Russians are hitting the electrical grid. And basically their plan is going to be, um, destroy the will of the people over the winter. And we started planning a whole campaign, which ended up becoming something called Winter is Coming, which was kind of a ripoff of Game of Thrones. Um, and we were able to raise a million dollars from that, to which we used to buy generators, winter jackets. So um, I remember we 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 wired money uh, and the, the next day there was an 18 wheeler of generators going from the Netherlands to Ukraine um and and like a month later guys were uh, messaging us and saying um that those generators were the best generators that they that they had and like stuff like that made me made me really proud of what we'd been able to do but from from that winter campaign we ended up buying like two hundred thousand dollars worth of jackets and sleeping bags and um and then it was like tactical medicine and stuff like that so it went from humanitarian aid initially and then became primarily military. But within that as well, we donated to like the uh, Azovstal um, POW funds. So we we ended up spending a few tens of thousands of dollars with, with them um, so that those guys who were coming back from the front could have like, um, you know, stuff that they came back to even i remember how, how simple it was it was just like these boxes that they were giving them with like toothbrushes and shaving kits and and some basic clothing and and, and stuff like that so um we we talked like we, we've touched a lot of different spaces we didn't just stick to one type of thing basically and that's an interesting part of the way people have got involved right from the start of the war i think um it's not always easy to predict where the need's going to come from or where the next threats come from. But volunteers around the world seem to have been sort of very reactive and they've used the feedback for people on the ground, like, well, you know, we've got enough of this stuff. Now we need some more of this stuff. You know, we've got enough first aid kits and whatever. Now we need something else. And that seems to me particularly Ukrainian, which is, you know, governments move more slowly, their planning is more slow, they don't necessarily plan for the detail than the small stuff. So private enterprise steps in, individuals step in like yourselves. And that's one of the big features, I think, of Ukrainian resilience, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I um in 2015, I did a story about a group of uh drone operators who were who were figuring out how, how to attach grenades to drones to commercial drones and also another group that was building um b big commercial drones and these were just regular guys who just who realized that hey there's a need for this right so they figured out crowdfunding and stuff like that fast forward now 
they actually develop some of the some of the drones that the Ukrainian special forces, the SSO uses. Um, those other guys now are the like pr the primary group of um, of drone operators for the Ukrainian military. Like they, it's it's crazy to see how this conflict that started, you know, ten years ago at this point, basically, right. Um, I, I think that a lot of people just kind of tuned in last year, but the the Ukrainians on the ground, like they've had years and years and years of experience of how do we galvanize our own society to 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 like care about this and 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 understand how how the logistics chain works. And then I think that the rest of the world, when they saw, quite honestly, like I think it was it was so black and white. It was so evil versus good. That's that's why so many people around the world. Um, were drawn into this, right? And 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 wanted to help in some way. So I think that um, the Ukrainians on the ground were able to tell the rest of you know people around the world, hey, this is what we need, and this is why we need it. And they were very effective at that at that communication too, right? And there's an interesting intersection here, and I think you know that 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 difference um, from 2014 to 2022, the world really was looking the other way. Uh, especially after the initial peak when Crimea was invaded and then, you know, Donbass got very confusing and messy and it, you know, too complex and drawn out, perhaps for the media or for ordinary people to really focus on. But another aspect of it was that Russian propaganda narratives were winning. The idea that Russian speakers in the Donbass were repressed, the idea that this is an organic revolt rather than something engineered by the GA, GRU, um, the failed uprising in Odessa and Mariupol were branded as, you know, the acts of Ukrainian Nazis, you know, attacking poor defenseless Russian speakers and not defending their towns, cities, councils and governments against essentially GRU funded insurgents. Um, that has changed, hasn't it? And to bring that topic onto the idea of drones, not only is it an extraordinarily effective uh, military strategy, Everyone who is watching this conflict will also have seen the drone footage on a near daily basis. It's an extraordinary informational weapon as well. Yeah, I think um, I think that the 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 lessons from 2014 to, to 2022 from the Russian disinformation side. The, the thing for me as a journalist looking back at that is that it seemed impenetrable, like that narrative that the Russians put out that, hey, these were just little green men in Crimea. Um, oh, you know, what was happening in Donbass, we had no part of it. It was just a local organic uh, resistance. Farmers found these tanks in, you know, local shops and all these insane narratives now that you look back on it. Um, but it was it was limited, right? Like. Crimea, there was there was no, there weren't planes in the sky dropping bombs, right? It wasn't so dramatic. It was dramatic, but it wasn't as dramatic as what we see we saw last year and what we're seeing now. So I think that the world looked at it, and 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 I know that like you know from the American side and from the European side, there really was a, a reluctance to get involved and and escalate, right? Um, and I think that that's why the Russian narratives were able to permeate and, and to win and just to like seep into the conscience. And, and, and a lot of people just kind of decided, well, that's so far away. It's kind of meaningless to, to my life and I'm not going to get involved. And I think that um, I think that 
like people intuitively knew that the Russians were lying, right? Because like, who else would it have been in Crimea? Who else would have orchestrated all this in Donbass? Um, but then I think in 2022, it was so blatant. Like, I mean, the Russians finally did it as the Russians. They admitted what they were doing that, you know, Putin goes on and then has this address and says, okay, we're, we're going to denazify Ukraine. I think that that's when people just said enough is enough. We don't believe your side of things anymore. We're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. And I think that that's when the pendulum swung towards Ukraine and Ukraine was able to to capitalize or leverage the the narrative to have people support them, right? Not not just your average citizen, but but world leaders, which are you know the mo the most important because that's really what saved Ukraine is uh, all these world leaders basically saying, okay, enough is enough. We're going to send you guys, uh, you know, the the best anti tank weapons. Now 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 we're talking about F sixteen. Like it's it's crazy for me to see how far it's come because as somebody who you know saw the war all the way back in twenty fifteen. I never, ever, ever thought that Ukraine was going to get any of this stuff. Like even the javelin was was something that seemed impossible for Ukraine to get. And now you're talking about F-16s. It's 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 crazy for me to 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 think about how far it's come. But it's it. I think it really comes down to people basically just said enough is enough. We're not going to believe this Russian narrative anymore. Like you've shown your true colors. Right. And um, yeah, now 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 i would say that they're on the defensive and this is the biggest argument isn't it to countering those who i still see unfortunately saying well you know, this is all nature's fault nato expansion blah 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 um and it gives the light to that because you know none of the weaponry that you've talked about not even the defensive weaponry like the javelins um had been provided prior to the full-scale invasion then there was a bit of a rush to try and catch up. But even then, for the first few months of the war, it was largely defensive equipment on the assumption that Ukraine would fall. Yes, they're bravely resisting, but there's no way they can beat Russia. Russia's invincible. Russia's huge. Russia's this, that, and the other. Um, and also, if Ukrainians hadn't shown their willingness to resist and their ability to push Russia back, it's kind of doubtful that this equipment would have been provided. Yeah, I think... I think um... So uh, a, a friend of mine is uh, uh, Evgeny Maloletka. Um, he's the he's the photographer for Associated Press who took the the pictures in Mariupol. To me, the pictures that he took in Mariupol were the turning point because when when they were able to and and him and Mstislav Chernov, who the, the two of them were there together. Uh, Mrsislav now has a film called 20 Days in Mariupol, which is honestly, I, I watched it and it was very difficult for me to watch. Um, I almost walked out in the first five minutes because it, it, it's a really, really, really difficult film to watch, but I highly recommend anybody goes and sees that. But um, the work that they did to show the reality of what the Russians were doing to innocent civilians and to an, to an innocent city, um, I think that was when something flipped in people's heads and they said okay javelins and end laws aren't enough like we need to support this country with maybe not whatever we have at that point but with more than we're giving them because they deserve more than we've given them at this point right and um it's amazing to, to you know 
it's amazing how journalism can can have that effect, how photography can have that effect. And I, like I said, I, I I really never thought that that was ever going to happen, that we would see um, all of these NATO countries, America, the UK, actually supporting you in Ukraine, supporting Ukraine to, to, to that extent, to this extent that they have. But um, the narrative that it's, you know, uh, that this was all started by NATO is so crazy because the Russians themselves, like Putin, the, I think yesterday pulls out this map and sh and says like, oh, Ukraine never actually existed. Like Ukraine's a fabrication, right? Um, that's what it's all about. They just don't think it's a country that should exist. And that's that's basically what it comes down to for them. And every every other argument about how NATO started it, how it's we're defending ourselves against NATO, like it's so to anybody who looks at it logically and looks at the timeline of events, it's it's nonsensical, right? I mean, I mean, this is a country that was just sitting there trying to push in a western western direction for prosperity's sake like most of the population wanted to to be pushed into the eu and and then russia up and decides that they're just going to invade so I, I think people just saw through the narrative that's right and you know that map was an extraordinary moment because it's quite clear even on the stills from that video that it says ukraine <laughs> land of the cossacks it's yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's it's evidence of ukraine's existence and of course, it's worth noting, St. Petersburg isn't on the map. And <laughs> the territory of St. Petersburg at that point was owned by Sweden. So not, not a great example for him <laughs> to show. Um, and what you said there, I think, really highlights the importance of the informational sphere. And what you've created in St. Javelin, along with NAFO, these incredible kind of organic informational activist networks, um, and how do you think the importance of galvanizing Western support has been of what I would say the sort of two titans of the new popular informational warfare, yours and NAFO? I I um I think that you know it I, I'll never understand the effect that we've had, but like may, maybe when I'm older and and you know the the history of this war is written more extensively but um it's unbelievable to me to see how many people and how many different positions we've been able to affect um i i really think that what it came down to is that with saint javelin it was an early symbol of support for for ukraine right it was something that like you you could have the sticker put it on your car um, and it wasn't just about like, hey, I'm sending money to Ukraine, but it was about showing other people that I support this country, right? It's it, it might be a weird analogy for some people, but I, I I really think that what people were doing was kind of like it was kind of like sports, uh, and they were supporting their team basically, right? And they wanted other people to know that they were supporting their team. That's why not only St. Javelin gear, but like thousands of organizations were creating Ukrainian t-shirts and all this kind of stuff, scarves, flags, whatever. Um, and people were wearing it in droves. And I, I think that, um, I think that what we managed to do or what we were a part of is just to like bring eyeballs and, and bring constant attention. And at this point, you know, 
most of the world's attention isn't on this anymore. Uh, there's, but, but there is a core group of people who still really, really, really care about what's happening. Um, and a lot of people in, you know, positions of power really care about what's happening because they understand the repercussions if you don't care about what's happening, right? If you let R Russia steamroll Ukraine, um, there's going to be a whole terrible set of consequences that follow and it sets a terrible precedent, right? So um, there's a lot of things that 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 play into what's happening. But I think our role went from um, you know, begging the world to care about this a little bit to now we basically provide as much information as we can on a daily basis to a core group of people around the world who hopefully share that through their own Instagram or through their own Twitter and like help people understand that this is still going on. Quite frankly, like a lot of my friends, they message me once in a while and they're like, Hey, is that thing still happening? Like it's so off the news that people don't, don't understand at all what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and, and, and you can't blame them because it's been so long that it's hard to care about something that's happening thousands of kilometers away, right? So um, our job is just like, keep keep grinding away on the information space and like keep explaining to people what's happening on a daily basis and like uh, pulling at those emo emotional heartstrings and, and, and stuff like that. So. Um, I think we continue to do a great job of that. And I think that uh, I was going to ask one question, but I think what you said there, you know, triggers another one. And that is that Ukrainians, despite, you know, the incredible achievement of going from a relatively misunderstood country or not understood at all, and really living in the shadow of Russia, have carved out an identity on the world stage. You know, everyone knows Ukraine. Everyone knows the colors of the flag. Everyone would be able to name some characteristics of Ukrainian identity that is now distinct from Russian identity, which, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, I think almost no one would have been able to to do who, who you know, hadn't studied the sort of culture and language. Um, and but there still remains a kind of humility. And, uh, you know, I think what we're witnessing is incredibly historic. And yet, as you say, many people have tuned out. Many people don't think about what's happening in the day to day as being genuinely pivotal moments in history. But I think this is one. And the Orange Revolution was another and really culminating in Maidan. What we're looking at here is a sort of century defining moment where the axis of history sort of turns and changes. And I put this question to one of the leading historians on Ukrainian history, an incredibly, uh, you know, he's read a billion more books than I have. And I asked him, you know, will Maidan come to be seen as a moment as important as, say, the 1848? revolutions um which defined helped define the 19th century and he was like oh you know i never thought of it like that and i think that talks about you uh, know extreme humility um but after victory has been won i think ukrainians are going to need to be a little bit more self-confident a little bit more pushy on the world stage uh, as they've shown they can do in wartime i think that is going to need to continue and that means there'll be a role for your operation uh, in that world as well. Yeah, I think I think um, what we've kind of identified about our, our ourselves and what we're doing is like, and I take a great responsibility in it now. Um, is we are a lot for a lot of people. We are their understanding of what Ukraine is, um, what's happening now, but also in the future, like what it is culturally, right? So 
what we're working on now is um literally like all, all the time now is uh we want to kind of export ukrainian culture to the rest of the world through um the clothing that we make artwork whatever whatever it is that we can do right so um before the shirts that you would buy from us the stickers that you would buy from us they were basically printed by a third party company and and delivered to you because it was the e you know when i started this there was no idea in my head that it would it would be this right so uh, we plugged into a third-party company. They were able to make these things, ship them around the world easily. And then um, last year, last April, I went to Kiev for the first time when the Russians just left the city. And, and I established St. Javelin, the Ukrainian uh, corporation. We did the legal uh, paperwork, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I, I hired a head of production and we started to figure out like, how do we make all of this stuff in Ukraine. So we're well on that way now. And the first big thing that we're going to be doing in about six weeks is uh, a collection called uh, Crimea Beach Party, which everything there is made in Ukraine. So that collection, to, I was just editing the postcards for that collection last night. And I was looking at those postcards and I was thinking to myself, like, this thing that we're doing is going to I mean, it's basically like a psychological campaign to educate people about what Crimea is, because to a lot of people, Crimea is just a piece of land. They've never, they have no idea where it is. They've never seen it. They've never been there. What, what this thing is going to be is, uh, you know, and even unintentionally, um, it's going to hopefully like emotionally connect people to what that experience of having your home taken away and and longing for that to be to to be brought back to you, right? If you're a Crimean Tatar, if you're just a Ukrainian who had to flee Crimea, um, I know so many people who their fam their 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 homes were broken up. Their parents are still in Crimea, but they moved to Kiev or they moved to Europe. Um, and and you know th those stories and the story of what it's like for a Ukrainian who was who always would summer in Crimea and for a month, you know, they take a train from Lviv and go to Crimea and stay there for a month and stuff like that. Um, like they desperately want now for their kids to have that experience in Crimea and like to see Ukrainian Crimea again. So that collection will be the first thing that we do at a huge scale that's made in Ukraine and that is like an export of Ukrainian culture that we put into the world. And, and hopefully we're able to do that over and over and over again in the future. But um, I, you know, I think we all take a great responsibility in, in making sure that people see Ukraine in the way that um, we want them to see Ukraine, not and not just think about it as like this war torn country. Right. But see, see the, the, the beauty and the culture and, and, and all of that. So um, that's what we're working towards now. And, and, and hopefully for years and years and years to come, we can, we can be part of that. And that's an interesting point as well. Again, as a, as a former journalist, it'd be interesting to unpick this one. And the news seems to love black and white. It likes heroes. It likes villains. It likes victims and aggressors actually, because that frame is a very simplistic narrative. Ukrainians don't fit naturally, even those, and there are many, many hundreds of thousands who are victims of crimes, uh, Russian crimes. It seems to me that no Ukrainian wants to be thought of as a victim. They want to be thought of as strong. 
They want agency. They want to be able to control their worlds. They want to be able to self-organize and do all those things that we now start to associate with Ukrainians. Um, but there still is this tension, isn't there, between what the mainstream media wants in terms of its predictable narratives and what Ukraine needs and what Ukrainian people want to project into the world. Yeah, I think I think that they've had a, a ton. Uh, United 24 has actually done an amazing job of this, of like coining the term un unbreakable. Um, and, and I think that that's an amazing way to, to, to illustrate Ukraine because, um, and, and the Ukrainian spirit, because nobody gave this country a, a fighting chance when the Russians were invading, right? Everybody thought that this, I mean, the Russians thought it was going to be a three-day war. Uh, you know, there, there, there was no sense that Ukraine was able to, was going to get to this point. It's 450 days or plus at this point. Um, and, and it's, it's like, there's yes there's heroes there's villains uh to a certain extent it's like black and white it's evil versus good but it's been a year and a half almost and it's been a roller coaster for ukraine like the winter was incredibly difficult our team um on a nightly basis was being hit by drones uh you know we would be chatting in our in our in our text groups at 3 a.m and still to like to this day, that's still happening. So um it's it's an emotional roller coaster for 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 everybody there. And and uh I think it's 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 going to be important for Ukrainians to explain to the rest of the world for a long time how this affected them, because I think a lot about the psychological impact that this war will have on them for a long time. And I think it'll be generations of trauma that this, that this causes, right? Because like, I'll give you an example, our, our, our team um, for the last week and a half, uh, every night in, in our group chats, uh, 3am, 4am, they're being atta attacked by drones. And I just, I see the looks on their faces when we talk in the morning um, and, and how exhausted they are. And they still, you know, they, 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 they want to work because um, it takes their minds off of what's happening uh you know, in their in their day to day um but but they're so exhausted and 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 like mentally none of these people wanted to be part of a war right they're just average regular civilians and they were brought into it because they had to be right they um they never intended to be heroes There's a lot of people who are quote unquote heroes now they were just mechanics or teachers or whatever it is um they never wanted to kill anybody but but they were forced to do it because the alternative was you be killed or your family be killed right so um it's it's a really it's a really really difficult uh obviously like the last year and a half has been really difficult but it's a really difficult road ahead for people as well because once the violence ends and this is something i learned back in 2015 when i was a journalist there like when the violence ends which it you know for the most part 2015 Debaltsevo was the last big war uh, uh, event of 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 the you know first first iteration of the war, and then it was quiet. But that quiet was characterized by tons of PTSD. Uh, soldiers, you know, young guys walking around limbless in in Kiev, looking for meaning in their lives afterwards, right? And that was a, a one one hundredth of the scale of what this is. So so I think that um, it's it's going to be a long, 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 tough road for, for Ukraine from here.
And there's going to be a big requirement, not just for physical rehabilitation, which will be huge. And there are already some centers that are sort of pioneering treatments in that, but mental rehabilitation, uh, mental health support, um, which has only barely got going. Um, so do you see a role for St. Javelin and future campaigns post-victory in addressing, as you say, that sort of generational psychological trauma? Yeah, I, I like that's one thing that I, I'm I'm really uh, passionate about myself is trying to be part of the like mental health awareness. Um, unfortunately, still at this time, it's almost like if you put your efforts and focus and resources into that, um, you miss sight of the fact that you still have to win this war first. Um, so you can't really rehabilitate people while they're still at war. Like you have to be fully off of the front line and, you know, back into a normal life be before you can do that. So I would, I, I, we've had these discussions a lot actually, and, and I would like us to, you know, the, the majority of our funds to try to go towards that kind of rehabilitation because, our, our our slogan is to re uh, we're in the business to rebuild Ukraine. Um, and what I what I have come to understand about the term rebuilding is it's not just like the physical rebuilding of a school, for example, but it's the rebuilding of the entire society. And I think that like mentally that like the, the psyche and the trauma has to be rehabilitated and, and rebuilt. Um, and that, those are the kinds of things that you, you don't see the like that's not a physical scar, right? But when you speak to somebody who's uh, emotionally, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted because they can't sleep at night, like um, you, you, you see that pain and 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 the effect that that has, uh, and that's you know times millions of people in Ukraine. So, so it is something that I really, really want us to be part of. And art and identity can also play a role, can't it, potentially? And I know there's been a lot of sort of, uh, you know, studies and uh, into relieving sort of mental trauma through use of music and art. And you've got that interesting conjunction there with the materials that you're creating. And you mentioned the sort of Crimea, be um, Crimea Beach Party uh, range. Um, are you collaborating with local artists? And do you also see a role for art and, you know, cultural identity to help in that healing process. Yeah, uh, I think I think virtually all of the artwork that we've had uh has been has been completed by Ukrainian artists apart from there was one French artist in in the early going who did a spin-off of uh Saint Javelin, but um the thing that we're trying to do is to have the vast majority of our impact be in ukraine for the time being maybe in the future it'll expand to you know the rest of eastern europe and the baltics and 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 whatnot but um right now uh for example for spring of next year we're looking for ukrainian designers and artists that we can we can work with um we have two guys full-time who are a designer and an artist who work for for Saint Javelin. Um, this morning, I just had a conversation with somebody who uh, will probably also be bringing in, um, kind of like on a part time basis. And and we we get like we get requests for collaborations and and stuff like that all the time. So we're trying to figure out how do we build a consistent supply of our product and simultaneously find people who are 
creating interesting artwork that we can put out there for for the masses right um because we you know like i mentioned before i take a, a lot of responsibility in, in making sure that people see ukraine in the right way so we have been accused of of um being kind of like cringy and, and putting out designs that are just like um i don't even know what the what the english translation is for it, but it's kind of like i guess you would say cringe basically and i i don't want people to think of that when they think of Ukraine. I want people to see like the beauty of the Vishivanka embroidery and stuff like that. I want us to move into um, a company that creates really beautiful designs rather than just kind of like these kitschy souvenir shop types of things. So it's a, it's a, it's a long, long road ahead, but we're trying to find the right artists and designers in Ukraine to work with, to, to make that into a reality. So you're moving from sort of ephemeral memes, which, you know, can pass pretty quickly. I mean, obviously there are classic memes, which which are, are fun to look at over and over. And you're moving into more durable sort of cultural products, let's say, you know, yeah. actual actual art. And, and you're using Ukrainian artists to to create those. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. The, me the memes, you know, um, the memes, they don't like whenever the war ends the the attention the, the the memes they'll they'll dry up what we're trying to do is to build something that is classic sustainable and like implants an idea and an image of ukraine in people's psyche that that we want like we want them to see ukraine in a specific way we want we don't want people to see ukraine as this like war-torn third world developing country like if you go to kiev you see and, and if you have a perception of ukraine of that way then you go to kiev and you see what kiev actually is it's a beautiful world-class city like it's an incredible place right tons of creativity tons of smart 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 young people um and we want to export that so people understand that that's what ukraine is about right and i i think that a lot of people now around the world ha have a different perception of of like the unbreakable spirit of ukraine and stuff like that and 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 hopefully working with these artists they'll come up with ideas that like i'm not i'm, I'm not that guy right I, I can't come up with those ideas i can just help try to get them out to people but um there's so much talent in that country that uh, i hope we can just help them tell their story basically and as a sort of marketing guy, I have to ask, uh, you know, the next question and it's about how the interplay between that creative process, you know, the people planning and creating these assets. Um, and I guess this is where perhaps we're more, more similar here, actually measuring how they perform and then recycling those insights into, into what you produce and what you plan. Um, so without reading the secret source, you know, how do you, do you use sort of stats and insights from sales and user feedback in order to you know plan the next set of of materials and product yeah 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 we we have um uh once a week we just have a meeting to to review like what what people's suggestions are uh what like what's been selling um we take a lot of feedback from customers and a lot of people want us to you know I wish we could do all the things that people want us to do but it's literally impossible right some of the ideas are so outlandish but super fun but um we have to think about like what what is practical so we look we look a lot at what the data is showing uh what 
people are requesting us to make and 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 what's you know practical and then and then also uh some of it comes down to just like what do we what is the story that we want to tell right like what direction do we want to be going in um so like i i mentioned we don't want to be known for this like crazy souvenir shop potentially cringy thing we want to actually become a brand like i don't know if you know the brand fjallraven from sweden but they um they are a brand that makes really, really, really great outdoor products. And there's just a hint of Swedishness to it, right? Um, what if we can do something like that, but incorporate more artwork into it, like more more of a Ukrainian story into it and and be something that people around the world know. Um, and maybe that's their touch point into into Ukraine and understanding what Ukraine is uh, more and more. It's it like it's a we're still in our infancy, you know, trying to figure that stuff out, but I think we have a good roadmap for it. And um, data plays a huge, huge role. And the last question, I think, touches upon something that is at the heart of uh, St. Javelin's success and NAFO, of course, and that is humor. And not just using humor, and as you say, in a sort of cheesy way, but actually tapping into a kind of organic native humor and cynicism, which seems to be a key part of Ukrainian culture, um, and at sometimes, you know, extremely dark sense of humor, uh, which which is you know very close to the British one, I think as well. So it yeah. goes down very well here. Do you think it's going to be difficult or actually quite natural to be able to fuse humor into the direction you're taking with the artwork and creativity? I think. Oh, this is actually something that we were talking about this week too. Um, humor is something that we can't ever get rid of because naturally, like in our group chats, when we're coming up with ideas and whatever, it just, I guess the people on our team were, everybody brings some sense of humor to it. Right. Um, all of the memes that we make, they, they, they wouldn't have happened unless that was the case. So for example, um, with this Belgorod thing the other day, um, we made a meme um, where it was, pre you know, that the I think it was the second day of the war. President Zelensky filmed himself outside the presidential office and he was saying, I'm here. The prime minister's here. Uh, your Mac is here, blah, blah, blah. So we took that video and placed them in front of us in front of the Belgorod city sign. And we said, we're here. Our military's here, blah, blah, blah. And that went super viral. Like we've done a ton of stuff like that. And that, you know, <laughs> That really doesn't pertain to like the business side of what we're doing. Those are just things that we do as as kind of like a feel good thing for our audience. Um, they make us laugh, so we continue to do them. And I don't see a scenario in which we'll ever stop doing them. We actually we actually like devote a lot of time to making stuff like that. Probably probably like too much time. But um, I think like to your point about, you know, the, the British sensibility, I think that a lot of people around the world have this kind of darker humor and and they really enjoy it and they see that the Ukrainians have it. And it actually like we get a lot of messages from people who who can't wait to visit Ukraine when the war is over. And, and I think that they'll see that when they go there, they'll experience that humor and they'll kind of like fit right in, right? And they'll find a new European country that they'll actually like to visit a lot. Um, and that's very welcoming to them. So I think that humor is something that you can really use to connect to 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 a ton of people. And I think I think 
you know, us, NAFO's done an amazing job of that because there's so many creative people that are just contributing on their own. It's not like it's decentralized, right? Um, so they've done they've done an amazing job of of putting out all these memes and stuff like that. And it's it's just something that, you know, it, it's 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 a it's the best way to connect to people. And a morale booster. I mean, it's very yeah. difficult to get a sense of, you know, how these go down at the front. But I do get the impression that uh, that these memes are consumed by people on the front line and it helps to lighten the mood in what must sometimes seem like extremely dark and traumatic times. So, so um, Alexei Reznikov, the Minister of Defense, is a fan of St. Javelin. And um, the first time he saw St. Javelin, um he he's he said he laughed at it because he like he recognized it was a symbol of support but it's also just a funny thing right it's a play on an on icon and you have the 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 missile and then we sent him saint Hymars and stuff like that and it really it, it's a it's a morale boost and it's something that um it's like a light at the end of the tunnel right like there is a it, it, it kind of symbolizes that there's a whole world behind you it's not just you guys on your own um and uh, I think, I think all like my experience in journalism being on the front all, all those years back, back when um, you see how important humor is on the front. Right. And there was, a, there was a brilliant Hromadsky report. Hromadsky is a Ukrainian media. Uh, Nastya Stanko is a Ukrainian journalist who was doing a report in Bakhmut at a hospital. They got shelled while she was doing her report and one of the doctors doesn't even flinch. And then he laughs. And she said, like, why, why are you laughing? And he said, well, how the hell else am I supposed to get through all of this? Right. It's just it's it's like a coping mechanism. And I think that when you lean into into that, into using it as a coping mechanism, like you can you can get through some really difficult times and, and you can. Yeah, you can find yourself laughing at some things that you'd never thought you would laugh at. But 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 it's I don't know, it's 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 almost like medicine, basically. Well, and you've certainly been sort of delivering that medicine uh, in in bucket loads since the war began, for which we're incredibly grateful. And I should mention as well, because there's two interviews coming up, which I think tie in incredibly well with two things that you've mentioned on this. I am going to speak to one of the leading figures in Ukrainian tourism next week, because oh, cool. that that's a great way to rebuild the economy. Uh, so it's interesting you mentioned that. And I'm also going to be speaking to a uh, service uh, person who's actually going through rehabilitation, uh, physical oh. and psychological. So I think, you know, it's going to be important to cover these stories and it's going to be important to sort of carry on doing this and the incredible work that you're doing, even after, uh, you know, victory has been achieved. Yeah, I think the 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 but both of those things are incredibly important. The tourism, I I can tell you that from what we've seen from messages from people, there's going to be a huge, huge, huge influx of people who want to go see what this country is all about because they've only heard about it or seen it in pictures or or on social media, right? And they they want to go and they want to meet these people who um they've they've seen on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever, and they want to see these cities. It's I really think that it's going to be like an unprecedented wave of people who go into Ukraine and, and discover it for the first time and fall in love with it. And I'm one of those. I'm looking forward to that. I've traveled all over Russia. I've never been to Ukraine. So that's something I would absolutely love to do. Um, Christian, I want to say thank you. We've come come to the end. It's been incredibly enlightening. 
I think the audience will join me in you know thanking you for the incredible work that you've been doing since uh, before the the, the full scale conflict began, and very grateful that you could appear on the channel as well. Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava. Thank you very much.